Hello and welcome to The Invisible Hand. My name is Dominic Sherab and I'm joined by my co-host Paul Scanlon to look under the hood of the Australian economy with a view to understanding what's happening and why. We have our usual three segments again, and this week in our first segment, What's in the News, we'll be again talking about inflation and interest rates, but this time with the view to understanding whether the RBA can get the economy back on an even keel. In our second segment, The Hand, we'll be turning to the US economy and discussing the shock downgrading by Fitch of its credit rating of the US federal government and how this will impact us here in Australia. In our final segment, The Invisible, we continue our series on China, and this time we'll be looking at deflationary problems plaguing Australia's biggest trading partner. But before we get into it, welcome back, Paul. Thanks, Dom, and welcome back to you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Very fun continuing our experiment here, and I want to thank uh, all our listeners who reached out with some great feedback. We had lots of really positive feedback after our first episode. Uh, a particular thank you to Matt, who gave us the longest feedback. <laughs> that was great. We got lots of tips from that one. And Adam, who suggested that we should do a little bit more in our intro to explain what's happening on the podcast. And that's exactly what you did. Thank you, Dom. Thanks, Adam and Matt. So, what's in the news? This month, the RBA again decided to leave the official cash rate on hold at 4.1%. This is on the back of a pause in July and the release of inflation notes which show the CPI dropping from 7.8% per annum in December to 6% per annum in June. This looks like inflation is trending down the way the RBA would like and seems to justify the policy pause in July. So in our first episode, Paul, you were predicting that inflation would remain sticky, meaning that the RBA would need to continue its course of raising interest rates. Were you surprised by their decision to hold rates in August? No, not entirely, Dom. I mean, the RBA has shown a strong strength of conviction by raising rates 12 times since May 2022 and then pausing that approach in July and August. Uh, The RBA Governor, Dr Lowe, has long talked about the lag in monetary policy with the effects of raising interest rates taking some time to flow through to changes in behaviour in the economy. But understanding the data is important. Although the headline CPI rate dropped from 7.8% to 6%, We did see oil prices down, which contributed to a fall in fuel prices and associated travel costs. But outside of fuel prices, we saw goods prices continue to fall broadly as expected, but we did see services inflation remain high due to the tightness of the labour market and rising cost of rents. Basically, what we're seeing is an easing in international cost pressures, the slowing of domestic demand, and we're certainly seeing people spending less money at the shops. All these factors are weighing heavily on the mind of the RBA. People have now started talking about a soft landing for the RBA after what really felt like a tumultuous takeoff. We spoke about this last week, and I wonder if your predictions have changed at all in terms of how long it will take for the RBA to get inflation back within that 2 to 3% band whilst balancing the Nairu. Yeah, well done, Dom, for bringing back the Nairu. We talked <laughs> about that in episode one. So the Nairu is uh, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And so the RBA has got a couple of objectives. It's trying to keep inflation in the target band range of 2 to 3% whilst managing the right level of unemployment in an economy so that it doesn't push up inflation. Um, that's what people are referring to as the narrow path that the RBA is trying to walk between. Uh, in its statement following the announcement, the RBA told us it wasn't quite done with this um, policy tightening cycle, with further tightening likely to occur depending on the data. So let's dig into that data and see what it's telling us, Dom. The Australian inflation rate is currently 6% per annum, but the target range for the RBA is well below that at 2 to 3%, so roughly half of where it is now. 
the official cash rate is 4.1%. So it's less than the current rate of inflation. So let's think about that with some international comparisons. We could look at the US, for example. Uh, its official cash rate is in the mid fives, but its inflation rate is 4.7, so less than the official cash rate. Mm-hmm. In Australia here, we're seeing the cash rate is currently below the inflation rate. So the RBA would, in fact, manage yet another economic miracle if it could keep interest rates below the inflation rate whilst it attempts to bring it down and certainly keep it within the mid-fours, um, and which is much lower than what we're seeing in the US in the mid-fives. Um, that's, again, an example of the RBA trying to walk this narrow path, which is successfully doing at the moment. Uh, by trying to bring down inflation without destroying the economy and keep all those hard-fought gains in uh, reductions in the unemployment levels that have occurred in the Australian economy. On a human level, we see the next meeting as the last for Dr Lowe as governor of the RBA before Michelle Bullock takes over. On the one hand, he might do her a favour by leading with what might be the last rate rise in this policy cycle. Or on the other hand, he might not want his last meeting as RBA governor to be one where interest rates go up. Fair enough. On balance, inflation and particularly services inflation is still too high and interest rates are well below the rate of inflation. So I'm predicting we aren't yet at the peak of this cycle and certainly we won't be seeing any rate reductions until well into the 2024 calendar year, sorry. So the challenge for the RBA is to bring the economy back into a position where inflation is within the 2 to 3% band without dampening growth to such an extent that the economy contracts. This is typically a very bad situation to be in because as a central bank, the tool you have to use, which is monetary policy, can basically only do one thing at a time. So go up, go down, or stay the same. It's impossible to target both inflationary and deflationary pressures simultaneously. So, Paul, do you have any fears of this sort of situation arising in Australia? Yeah, we can think about this particular problem from two directions. Uh, Our Australian economy has internal factors and external factors. So from a domestic perspective, things are going pretty well. Uh, Interest rates have gone up, but they haven't gone up as much as our international peers. Unemployment is remaining low and inflation, although high and coming down and remaining relatively sticky, is trending in the right direction. So big ticks for the RBA and the Australian economy from a domestic perspective. That's not the only thing that uh, makes things happen here. We are an international trading country as well, and the impacts of things that occur outside our borders matter as much, if not more. And certainly there's some big things going on in our two biggest trading partners in China and the US. And I think, Don, we're going to talk about those two places a little bit later in today's episode. That's right, Paul. Next up is our segment called The Hand, which is a nod to our namesake economist Adam Smith's reference to the forces that shape our economy. Let's discuss what's moving markets this week. So the American dollar is largely speaking the currency of global trade and exchange. If we wanted to look historically why this is the case, it actually relates to the First World War when the Allies paid the US for supplies in gold, which led to the US becoming the biggest holder of gold in the world. Then, with the Bretton Woods Agreement made following the Second World War, the US currency was chosen as the world's reserve currency because of its assumed stability. Why is this important to know? Well, this past week, Fitch, which is one of the big three global rating agencies, downgraded the US's long-term credit rating from AAA to AA+. Firstly, Paul, what is a credit rating? 
Well, before I get into that, thanks, Dom. Um, that historical context is super interesting, actually, to think about how the U.S. became the central currency I know. for international trade, um, flowing out of gold payments from World War II. Great story. Thanks for that. Uh, but put simply, uh, credit rating is an assessment of someone's likelihood to pay their debts. Credit ratings can be thought about for anyone that borrows money. So that could be people, could be businesses, or even countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a country level, uh, we think about a country's likelihood of default on its debt. Default might be not paying the debt, or it could be paying its debt late. Okay. Uh, there are three big companies that do global ratings. They are S&P, Moody's, and Fitch. You might have heard of those three companies. They got into a bit of trouble around the GFC for being a bit generous on some of the ratings they gave to some um, bit too tricky securitization products. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you might have seen the movie The Big Short with Margot Robbie. Uh, but nowadays they're, they're pretty conservative and really focused on doing a, a good job. That's good. <laughs> so the US being downgraded from the highest notch of AAA to one notch lower to AA+. It doesn't really sound like junk bond territory, but it does mean that despite being the global currency of trade, the US now has a credit rating lower than Germany, Denmark, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, Singapore, and, and even Australia. So it's a pretty big call to make, it seems. Um, what's your take on this, Paul? Well, maybe we should just make the Australian dollar the uh, the global <laughs> yeah, currency of international trade, what do you reckon? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's certainly a huge call, uh, especially for an American credit agency to be downgrading its own nation, uh, let alone downgrading the central currency in international trade. Yeah. Um, so why they do it? Well, Fitch uh, put forward three reasons why they um, completed the downgrade. The first was expected fiscal deterioration. Mm-hmm. The second was high and growing government debt. And the third was an erosion of governance. So what all this boils down to is the US debt is constantly growing, not shrinking, and the US government keeps running into its debt ceiling. What's that? Well, the debt ceiling is a cap on the amount of debt that the US uh, government has said that the US can borrow uh, in its operational activities. Okay. In June, the Democrats and Republicans lifted the debt ceiling to $31.4 trillion after months of political brinkmanship. To put that in context, the Australian GDP is $1.5 trillion and the oh. US GDP is $23 trillion. So wow. a ceiling of 31.4 is really big, actually. Um, but each time they do this, they, they do it, of course, knowing that uh, forecasts show the US government debt will, in fact, go beyond that ceiling in the not-too-distant future. So it's all a bit of a silly game, really. Uh, what Fitch is saying is that simply there is a chance that the US government might reach the debt ceiling and that those two sides of politics won't be able to sort themselves out and agree a deal to continue meaning that although no one really expects the U.S. government not to pay its debts, it might not pay them on time. So who who does the U.S. owe money to? Well, that's interesting. Um, the biggest uh, creditor to the U.S. is, in fact, Japan, with close to 15% really? of all uh, debt owed by the U.S. government. Uh, the third-ranked creditor is the U.K., uh, owning about 9% of all uh, U.S. government debt. But interestingly, the second biggest creditor, with close to 12% of U.S. government debt, is someone... They tend not to speak very positively about, and that's China. And so should we be concerned about this? Well, firstly, it's not the first time this has happened. Uh, S&P downgraded the US credit rating in August 2011, largely in relation to the same issues. So Mm -hmm. the debt ceiling debate has been going on for that long. 
Um, secondly, it does pour some fuel on the fire of the debate about whether we should be using or the world should consider a different or additional global currency for international trade. Cryptocurrencies love promoting this idea around mm-hmm. whether a, a cryptocurrency could potentially be used for that solution. I think we've got to disclose here that uh, I don't think, well, I certainly didn't get into crypto, Dom, did you? Not too deep. <laughs> no. It is interesting to note that the BRICS, uh, which is the economies of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa have an upcoming meeting in South Africa where they will, in fact, be discussing the possibility of creating a new joint BRICS Mm. currency. Um, But again, this sort of debate is not new, and in that scenario, it's more a response to sanctions currently against Russia in relation to their war in Ukraine. Um, But the chance of anything replacing the US dollar anytime soon are virtually none. Um, It will mean that the US is likely to pay a little bit more for its debt when uh, credit ratings are reduced, then interest rates tend to go up. Mm-hmm. But um, although markets have moved a little bit in that regard, uh, they haven't moved too much yet. So getting back to your question, what's my take on the downgrade? Well, so far there hasn't been any major impact by investors around the world and they've largely shrugged off the downgrade. Uh, but it does indicate something more structural about the role of the US economy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's certainly a well-timed reminder to the US government to stop messing about with its debt ceiling and perhaps think about getting rid of the debt ceiling. I mean, they don't follow it. They don't use it. And no <laughs> one else right. uses it anyway. So, it's it's a bit of a silly game. Um, and really, the better course of action would be for the US government to focus their energy on better economic policy to return the US economy back to surplus so it can start paying down its debt. That sounds like a great topic for our next episode, Mr. Scanlon. So, moving on to our final section of what's invisible, this section is when we think about those things in the economy which are pulling the strings, things we are not always aware of or not aware of, hence the invisible. What's invisible? Last week, we talked about Australia's unspoken reliance on trade with China, noting iron ore represented 35% of all export revenue and that 65% of iron ore exports go to our biggest trading partner, China. And while inflation has been the topic in the news in Australia, deflation is starting to emerge as an issue in China. China is struggling with both slowing growth and very low inflation. Exports, which were once the vitality of the Chinese economy, shrank by over 14% year-on-year in July in dollar terms, and the consumer price index fell by 0.3%, and domestic demand has spiralled off. Some people might be surprised to hear that deflation is a bad thing, actually. We've, we're harping on about how about inflation. Can you give us a quick rundown of what deflation is and why it would be bad? Yes, I'm really glad we're continuing with this chat about China and our reliance in the Australian economy context for it, and certainly there's some worrying numbers mentioned there. Thanks, Dom. Um, but what is deflation? Well, deflation is the decline in the overall price levels of goods and services, And so, it's the opposite of inflation. Uh, Deflation is typically the sign of a weakening economy as the demand for goods and services reduces, so two prices fall. Um, Economists fear deflation because falling prices leads to lower consumer spending. And so, uh, consumer spending is a major component of economic growth. And so, without it, we're in trouble. But wouldn't that be a good thing, falling prices? I I think that's good for me. Yeah, so you can think about it in two directions. Uh, Lower prices can mean people want to buy more things, but they need something to buy it with. And so when prices go lower, that prices also means the price of labor, wages and salaries. And so if businesses are receiving less cash from lower prices, they'll tend to reduce wages. 
which means people have less money to buy goods and services and so they buy less things and so you've got this downward spiral in an economy where it shrinks. Generally, in such an environment, central banks would be cutting interest rates. Makes sense, right? To ignite an economy, you need to stimulate it. That's what we saw central banks around the world do during COVID. By lowering the cash rate, the expectation is that businesses and consumers will kick into gear and either start buying or investing. Well, that's that's the theory anyway. The situation in China is intriguing because the central bank has not pursued this usual course of action. In fact, they've only reduced rates by 0.1% in June, which the economists labelled as puzzling, considering the state of the economy. So, Paul, how can we understand what's happening in China? Yeah, so to answer this question, I think we need a bit of context or backstory. Uh, We all know and have heard of the Chinese economic miracle over the last 30 years. We've seen the Chinese economy grow to become the second biggest economy in the world and on its way to become the biggest economy in the world in the not too distant future, Mm -hmm. uh, which has lifted literally hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and benefited many other people and nations around the world, including Australia, as we've been a big exporter of uh, minerals and particularly iron ore, as you mentioned, Dom, to the Chinese economy to help it grow. Um, And, of course, uh, it was affected by the COVID crisis um, and had to shut its economy like all of us. And since then, it's been in a different place. Um, The Chinese economy grew by 6.3% last year, and that might sound good compared to our growth rate of 1.6%, but it's not good when you're expecting higher and you've planned your economy around higher levels of growth. China's nominal growth, which is the rate before being adjusted for inflation, has also been weaker. And this has only happened four times in the last 40 quarters and has uh, arisen as a consequence of falling demand for goods and services in the domestic Chinese economy. And we're also seeing the property market in China being very sluggish with the sale of units being 27% lower in June compared to last year and the sale of houses by the top 100 developers being down 28% in June compared to last year. So we're seeing some big numbers um, moving in the wrong direction in the Chinese economy and that's causing some flow-on effects. Uh, Currently, the unemployment rate amongst urban youths in China is sitting at 21.3%. With the overall jobless rate sitting at 5.2% 5.2% in June. Just imagine how many people that is in a country of China's size. Yeah. With that many people not working and earning income, less money is circulating in the economy, and that's when you start to see these deflationary pressures arise. Right. So if deflation is occurring, why aren't Chinese central bankers taking more action? Well, again, let's dig into the data to try and understand that. We know that the Chinese cash rate is relatively low and expansionary at 2.65% per annum, but it's much higher than the inflation rate, which is um, what was negative in the last quarter and and about zero overall. Uh, The Chinese trade surplus is still very high at 70 billion US dollars for the month of June. Wow. But that is down from its all-time record of 100 billion dollars in July of 2022. So although high, it's uh, not trending in the right direction. And interestingly, the US policy of trade sanctions against China to reduce reliance on Chinese suppliers um, might appear to be working at the surface, but it's actually not working in the background. We saw some data come out uh, this week, which showed 
that the amount of low-cost inputs imported into the US from China had decreased. It was sitting at about 66% of all those types of imports in the Trump era before trade sanctions were started. Uh, and now it's down to 51% of low-cost imports are coming from China. But what we are seeing is a shift of those types of products being imported into the US economy from countries like India, Taiwan, Mexico, and Vietnam, mm. uh, which is essentially just a repackaging job. So the Chinese economy is still sending those goods and services into the US economy, but redirecting them through some other countries on the way. Mm-hmm. So that's helpful for the Chinese story. Um, and finally, what's really uh, a big backstop for the Chinese economy is that they are still the largest holder of foreign reserves in the world with $3 trillion built up after 30 years of trade surpluses. Wow. So you're right, Dom. I mean, it's a bit of a strange result for the Chinese central bank not to be reducing rates any further. A 0.1% reduction in interest rates is not much in response to these headwinds it's facing. And although I'm not a central banker for the Chinese government, I've got a couple (laughs) of hunches. Um, Certainly, um, they must have some belief that the momentum that they've got behind their current trade direction will be enough to overcome these short-term blips, Mm -hmm. if not decreasing more at this point. But what they do know uh, is that uh, they have a big problem in the amount of internal bad debts on the books of local governments and regional governments throughout China. So that's not a place that they're prepared to go spending a whole lot more money in terms of building local infrastructure. And ultimately, it's not a place or a government which has shown it's afraid to spend when needed. And so this might seem a temporary pause in policy, really. It's got a lot of firepower left at that. Uh, interest rates are 2.65%. It can reduce them when it needs to. And with uh, that amount of foreign currency reserves behind it, it can invest in things if it needs to. So this just seems to be a little bit of a pause by the central Chinese government to see what's going on. But you're right, the numbers are not good in China at the moment. And certainly the Chinese economy has some numbers in it which are not helpful for us. Mm -hmm. As one of Australia's biggest trading partners, how do you think persistent deflation could impact us? Well, China is big, so even with the decline in the demand, we can still expect a a pretty good demand for our mining resources. Uh, As we've talked about, I mean, that's a huge contributor, the biggest single contributor to the economic prosperity in Australia. But as economists, we do think about managing risk. And what we know is that the Australian economy relies too much on China. Mm -hmm. And decisions around spending and investment are being made without regard to how risky that reliance currently is. And secondly, the big machine that is the Chinese economy is starting to slow down. So our risk of relying on iron ore to China to pay for Australian schools, roads and hospitals is becoming an even riskier bet. It seems really mundane, but if there's one thing that these conversations show to me, it's that everything's really interconnected. So changes in one area, even if lagged, will have an impact elsewhere. Sure does. And so being across these changes and having an understanding of economics can help you predict where the next changes will occur. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Invisible Hand. If you like what you heard, please read our show. And if you have any questions or ideas for what's being discussed, please feel free to reach out. We look forward to joining you here again at The Invisible Hand. Until then, stay curious. Stay curious.